is the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has been judged worthy to live. I know where you dwell, your shame torment, and you hold fast my name. And you do not deny my faith, even in the days of my flesh, my faithful witness, when I stood among you with mighty words. But I have a few things against you. You have some men who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balaam, but a stumbling block to those sons of Israel who did not mind and believe that I have discovered and brought the treasure of my idols. So also you have some who hold the teachings of my faith, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and will repent and take you away from you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give a heap of hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, which he may know that he has come. No one knows what will come to him. Through that, what that means for uh, you, you know, just kind of feel like coming to something like that, or half of his will continue to carry his little one, um, and it'll be the next 20 weeks that they have life with their little one in the room. The doctor said more than likely, you know, motor functions all that, but he will grow himself and in his room, he said. Thank you. 
think timing where we looked in Revelation last week and what God said, what Jesus said to me about his suffering is that he knows. I know what's going on in your life. I'm intimately involved in your life. And then he clearly lays out that he has a design for our suffering. The Lord prepared us looking at First Peter and now here in Revelation, the Lord has a design for it individually, corporately, of shaping us, of helping us be overcomers. This, this isn't in theory right now. This is like right now in our lives. And we would pray for the family that they would believe, and we pray for our church that we would believe, that we would hope in God's design. We may not have picked this route. And yet God promises us, it's coming. With the gift of the Son, this is coming. God is going to use it to help you be an overcomer, to help you endure. When he adds on to that promise, remember God sets the boundaries for the suffering. And they push you to the limit, and yet there is a limit to our suffering. The limit may end. Remember, listen to all of the churches, our three keys. 
listen to all the churches. None of them may be lying exactly with you individually or with Redeemer, but hear what the church has said for you, not for someone else, but for you. Secondly, we don't tear down a strength in order to address a weakness. So when God tells us we strengthen your weakness, it's not let's switch emphasis. That often is the case in the church. It's a pendulum swing. So no, we, we, we want to maintain the strength and then get look at the weakness, how that addresses us in our situation. And finally, remember the vision of Christ that underlies all of this. A majestic, holy, awe-inspiring, fear-inspiring, life-giving Christ. One who can uphold and sustain. One who can tell you suffering is coming and you and can sustain you in it. One who is worthy to follow in the face of persecution. Not a Christ after your own making that you are comfortable with. But Christ as he presents himself to us. So we come to the church of Pergamum. We see how it's introduced. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Each letter goes back to something that we've seen about Christ in Revelation 1. And here, he draws attention to the sword, a sharp two-edged sword. At the end of this letter, it will come out again, a sharp two-edged sword that goes forward. It kind of gives us the picture of how we are to read this letter. And it is sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Christ, standing with a two-edged sword, one of both redemption and judgment, one that, that brings healing one that can wound, one that can convict and cut away at the callousness of your heart, and one that is life-giving and comforting. It's got both of those edges to it, and we see the truth of that. And so it's in this picture of Christ with the sword drawn as the good and the just judge that we read the rest of this letter. Jesus to the church at Pergamum, and he, he gives, he starts with a, a commendation. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we see the context here. First of all, they're, they're commended that they have not rejected Christ. When outside political persecution comes, when they are challenged with renounce Christ or die, they have not renounced Christ. They have withstood persecution. He highlights someone here, Antipas. There's not really a whole lot known about him. Tertullian, the early church father, mentions him a couple times in his martyrdom. We don't know whether he was a leader of the faithful guy, what it was. And yet, whatever it was, it must have been a gruesome martyrdom that he faced, because even in light of that, they still haven't walked away from the faith. You notice what the Antipas is called. He's called a faithful witness. Referring back to Genesis 1 5, where Jesus Christ is described as the faithful witness. He was a faithful witness of his father, the message of his father, all the way to the cross. We are called then to follow that example of a faithful witness, and here Antipas has indeed. So God commends them, and you see the description of 
greatest ministry is taking place, and it's where Satan sits on his throne, or where Satan dwells. If you look at last week, remember Smyrna was sort of like a, within Asia, and in Asia Minor, Smyrna was like the hub of military political presence for Rome in Asia Minor. And that's why persecution was so heavy on the church of Smyrna. Pergamum is, is sort of the hub of Roman religion and cultist practice. There's all kinds of temples built there, a temple to Zeus, but all kinds of worship that is taking place there. And you see it in this letter. And in this sort of pagan, cultist religion that is taking place, God says, here you have the throne of Satan. You have all kinds of, of evil being put forward as good and acceptable. That's a historical context where, where, where culture, where competing religions are turned against Christianity and, and are running against it. We know this is true. We see it again and again through Revelation. But we know it's true that the church will prevail, but it is being built in enemy territory. The promise of Jesus that he will come in Revelation it starts that he is coming into enemy territory because he's going to enter into war. He declares war on the serpent in Genesis 3. And Jesus Christ is born. He enters into darkness, into enemy territory. He has come to overcome the works of Satan. When it says that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we know that they are going to cry. And so we see that indeed the church is being built in an enemy territory, and yet we should take some courage that, that even in the darkest places, Christians exist, worship of God exists, the church exists, and God sustains it. And so he commends them, and yet, as he goes on, he says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What he has against them is while they have, have taken a bold stand from the political pressure and the things coming in not to denounce the name of God within the church, Compromise is running rampant. Compromise in their ethics. Compromise in the way that they live. Compromise then even in the doctrine and ethics that is going to sustain the church within. He has this against them. It's running rampant. He refers to the, the teaching of Balaam. If you remember the story of Balaam back in Numbers, you probably remember the beginning of it because of the donkeys, right? Balaam is a prophet or a diviner, as he's called, not an Israelite. He's not prophesying on behalf of Yahweh. And yet he is a prophet. And he goes forth, and Balak is the king of Moab. And I think number 22, he, he enlists Balaam to go and to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. And Balaam's on his way, and God intervenes through the angel of the Lord, and the donkey defeats the angel of the Lord. Stop Balaam from doing 
and out from that church. And over the next several chapters in Numbers, there's this back and forth as Balaam presents these oracles in honor of Yahweh God. But then you see in chapter 25, some time has passed, and you see that Moab, the Moabite people, have infiltrated the children of God. And through marriage and through relations and through religion and lifestyle, they have infiltrated subtly, they have infiltrated the people of God. And there is all kinds now of uh, compromise taking place. And they've moved so far away from the worship that God has called them to. They haven't outright rejected God, but they've just included all of this Baal worship. Baal is pure. You get to number 31, and judgment comes on Balaam. And you see in number 31 that it says that Balaam instructed Balak to take this course of action. To subtly undermine intermarry, to bring in a lifestyle, to bring in peace and, and pagan festivals into the house of God, into the children of Israel, to suddenly undermine it and it would bring devastation, and it does bring devastation in God's judgment. So when it talks about the teaching of Balaam, it's not so much a set of doctrine, but it is this method that he uses to destroy the people of God, to work against the people of God, and that is subtle compromise. The Nicolaitans, then, are more con- are contemporary with this church. And the Nicolaitans are doing the same thing. They are taking the approach that Balaam took. Now, it seems like the Nicolaitans, it's not quite so planned out and organized as it was with Balaam and Balak as an actual tactic. But unwitt- unwittingly, the Nicolaitans are having an, an influence within the church that is tearing down the church's ethic and tearing down the church's teaching and tearing down the church's morality. Interesting. The, the Balaam, the name Balaam and, and Nicolaitan, one Greek and one Hebrew, but they both have the same meaning. Means the, means the Lord or conqueror of the people. Lord or conqueror of the people. Lord of the people. And he's subtle compromise, that's exactly what takes place. And so we see what has infiltrated this church. The church that is bold in the sense of they're willing to die instead of forsake the name of Christ. And yet within they are not courageous and discerning and they allow all kinds of error in. They're kind of the exact opposite of Ephesus. A church that had it doctrinally together and was had such a tight grip around it that they were just judgmental and mean to each other within and unloving towards those without. Here's a church that has just sort of undiscerning, uncourageous love, we call it love, openness that has allowed all kinds of corruption in. And we see primarily he lists two things so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. The food offered up to idols is something that comes up again and again in the New Testament. And, and depending on the context, it's dealt with a little bit differently. So it's hard to just pick one way of always dealing with this meat offered to idols because it's not like the meat in and of itself is like a simple piece of meat. 
Corinthians at times is a bit more of a thing in different. But there is some freedom in how people approach it. Here in Revelation, it's obviously something different is at stake here. This isn't a matter of indifference. This means to join in is to, we're joining in these pagan feasts. We're joining in Baal worship. We're, we're mixing our Christianity with a little bit of, of the cultural influence of, of paganism. And you see it because it also includes sexual immorality. A lot of that pagan worship of that day included temple prostitutes and, and these weird, perverse sexual things that were in somehow related to their worship. And here, the children of God are allowing all of this to take place, and they're including it within their own church and within their own worship of God. There's now this participation in all of these feasts and in this inclusion of these this, uh, sexual immorality part of their worship. You see, indeed, it's not a thing that is indifferent. They're allowing compromise. You know, I want to say, I had it written down, Initially, I said, like, if there's ever been a time when that is clear, I thought every time the church has ever existed, compromise has existed. I mean, 2,000 years ago, there was still compromise. There will always be pressure. There will always be pressure to compromise, whether it's doctrinally, theologically, ethically, socially. There is going to be pressure to compromise. A lot of it is because we are geared to we we don't we don't want to be unloving. We want to reach out. It, it takes a matter of discernment and courage to walk that line between unlovingness and compromise. So you read in the gospel, Jesus is much harder, or at least he addresses more often the Pharisees and their legalism than he does the other side of sinners in the way that they are after. So I've heard an argument hundreds of times about that in my life. That Jesus dined with sinners, he ate with publicans, he went to the tax collector's house. Absolutely, yes. He was a light in dark places. He was gracious and patient and loving. He didn't stay cooped up and, and, and not scared. So, absolutely we agree with that. that. That Jesus went into hard, dark places and He was loving and, and kind and generous and disposed towards the sinner. And so it's not a running towards legalism. And yet it is quite clear from here and other places that it is deadly when you start taking your feet in the place of the cross, but in your instincts, you say, what is the difference between the God man and the loving man and the truth? The one who meditates upon the Word and lets the Word become his delight, and that is what influences them, or the one who stands in the gift of sinner, the evil one, and the scoffer, and lets that influence them. That person is no more of that. I think there's a lot more than we allow for in understanding the difference between Jesus dying on the cross and us being comforted by 
with no discernment, opening up ourselves to all kinds of cultural sins and social sins and things that run in the face of God's moral law for us. I think the reason is because we don't want to be intolerant people. No one wants to be called you're not tolerant or you're intolerant. That you think you're better than everyone. That you're righteous and who are you to judge everybody else. You don't want to be that person. And yet, today, we understand that you can be graciously disposed to someone and, and not judgmental and kind and friendly. But also say that this lifestyle is sinful. These choices are sinful. But in today's culture, unless you are celebrating the sin, you're intolerant. We still have to be able to cross that line of, of loving people who graciously dispose that say, I don't have any morality or any pride. So let's go and live that. I will not compromise on that. And it takes more courage right now. It takes more courage to say, I don't have any morality. Because you're saying to me, you love me. You're saying that that's a sin. The two, the identity of the two are so combined in today's culture that unless you're approving of me in all ways, then you're denying me dignity. You're denying me whatever it is. And I understand, as a Christian, wanting to be, I don't want to be that person who's intolerant and who denies it. And so I'll just take a step back. And I'll just take a step back. And, and you let it in, and you let it into your life, and you let it into the church. Soon, it's, it's infiltrated so much that it's hard to distinguish truth with not truth. The Nicolaitans, it was everything goes. Everyone is free to pursue what they want. But there does become a line where what you're pursuing completely undermines and runs in the face of the doctrine you say you hold to. And I do think the trajectory for Christians, unfortunately, is not that we be an isolated group of people, but that you will be characterized more and more as intolerant if you're uncompromising on God's truth in morality, sexual morality. So he looks at the church and says, this is where you're at, I get it. I commend you. You haven't denied my name, even when a horrible death is brought to somebody in your church. You still don't deny my name. But this subtle infusion of of ungodly thinking and ungodly lifestyle that, that then flows into a, a watering down of doctrine and theology. I'm coming with the sword, and I'm going to come justice and judgment. God's word goes forward. It does go forward with power. It does not return void. It either brings this sexual means of salvation that it is, is working in your heart towards your final salvation, or it is God's righteous judgment as you deny it again and again and again. But it does not return void. It 
may feel like I can just avoid the issue. Like I can, I get you come to church or you get up and you decide whether to read your Bible or not. And that one day and that one moment feels like it's more hassle to come to church than it is worth it. Or the extra sleep in the morning was better than getting up and reading our Bible. So I get day by day it's hard to judge the power of the word, but the accumulative effect of it is life giving. Compromising the truth, and it might be from a good place, and it might be out out of, of a desire to not feel judgmental and not whatever. But in the end, they are not being discerning, and they are not being courageous. And it's about where we should go. So he tells them in verse sixteen: Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Your repentance is, is part of the, the journey of the Christian life. That's why even in the Lord's Prayer, it's called to us. Give us our trespasses. It's a gift of God. We know that. Jesus tells us that. I pray that you stay from faith. God is not a result. It is just God. Faith and repentance work together. Believing Christ's promises, turning from that which is evil to receive that which God has called us. So this idea of repentance is not just doesn't need to be this one moment. It, it's part of an ongoing life of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And he calls the church, be humble. This is part of the journey. But listen, if you have ears to hear, you need to hear. Because you can't just ignore this and it goes away. There is no not being accountable for it. He who has ears to hear, hear what God has to say to his church. Because there's promise for those who do, and there's warning and judgment for those who don't. The word of God going forward demands that you listen and demands that you respond. If not, verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has the ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, Christ is speaking, he's walking in the midst of his family. He's walking in the midst of his church right now and telling you to listen. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. A little confusing, maybe, some of the references, but we know the manna that is through the people's wilderness journey as they left Egypt, that God provided spiritual safety for the man. You know the man was taken and put in, in that spot and kept in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that maybe it's a pilgrimage part of the man's journey. And then Revelation, on multiple occasions, describes the journey of the Christian between, his ascent, between Christ's ascension and his return as a wilderness sojourn. And in that wilderness sojourn, he will provide the spiritual manna spiritual food that we need. Moses himself says that the man appointed to something greater than just food in Deuteronomy. You see, one shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He'll provide that spiritual man, that spiritual nourishment for his temple, 
part of that promise, and then there's an eschatological part of the promise that begins, He will be our delight. He will be our satisfaction. The new heavens and new earth. I will give Him a white stone. Again, just a picture of the one who has overcome, the one who is victorious. This white stone is a new name written on it. Isaiah 62, Isaiah 65, is prophecy speaking about the new Jerusalem and Zion. And in that prophecy, it was said that we would be given a new name that no one else knows. We'll be given a new name. When we get to the church in Philadelphia in a few weeks from now, we'll see that Jesus Christ himself is the first to fulfill that prophecy because he received a new name. It's the promise in Philippians that every after Jesus is obedient unto the point of death. Christ was highly exalted, and he will give him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus is new shall die, and that his tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. There's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Those who are now in heaven, who are believers in heaven with Christ, are reigning with him. Christ returns to the church for the one who overcomes just as Christ received that new name, we will receive a new name that says our, our identification with and our belonging to the new heavens and the new earth. So what was Christ's inheritance is our inheritance as well with the Father. That's what's promised to the one who hears, who sees, and who overcomes. This one is tricky for us. Just the reality of it. Each of us needs to be discerning, to be wise, to be courageous in the way we engage the present. Not the pendulum swing and be an ethicist, but don't swing over here and be a Pergamon who just lets everything go. And realize you can pursue love and compassion. Sometimes it's still going to be wavered. Often you will be able to fall. And you might just have to take some time. God does not want us to stop. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that indeed as it goes forward, it does not return to us. Lord, for the pray that we would be a church who is both bold in the face of outside pressures and even within that we would try to compromise in our own hearts and our own minds. Lord, that we wouldn't come to cultural pressure and never give way to labor and power or judgment. 